Hello, this is Nicole Policarpio reading to you my Medium article for February 19, 2018, entitled, My Sister Died Yesterday. Almost. How I Cope Up With Death. How do you deal with death? I've heard from an acting colleague of mine that you can never get over death. She lost her husband a few years ago, and to this day, she still thinks about her husband, who she spent almost half of her life with. The biggest death in our family happened 21 years ago. My grandmother died. I was 9 years old at that time, and I have this vivid memory inside the van. We were on our way to the cemetery, and I can see everyone around me crying. My sister, my mom, and my dad. We were all wearing white. I was clueless and didn't realize the severity of what was happening. I didn't know what that means. Are they sleeping for long periods of time? When do they wake up? When do we start getting conscious about our demise? Somewhere along growing up, I remember being awakened from the long sleep. I have this memory of me praying at night, asking God, not to let my parents die. It was so sad thinking about their death. I couldn't fathom how I'd cope with it. I asked God to kill me first before my parents. Of course now, I would like to live until they invent a pill to make us immortal. But there hasn't been any significant progress on that pill. Until then, I'd have to deal with my own mortality. My immediate family is in their best shape. My folks are as strong as a horse, and my siblings are doing fine. But it all changed yesterday when my dad sent a photo of a car accident. It was one of our cars. The photo sent chills down my spine. I immediately asked what happened and if they were okay. My dad taught us driving when we were teenagers. Upon reaching the age of 17, it was mandatory to be the family driver. For two years, I got to be the family driver. He was our coach. When I began working under him, he taught me how to drunk drive. A big part of his work included drinking with business partners and going back home safely. I've always thought that it was stupid for us to drive like that. I've come to realize how important it was to experience it with him. The lesson was not to do it. It's easier to learn a lesson when you experience it rather than parents telling you not to do it. My father indulged me so I can realize on my own how stupid it was. It was 10 times harder than regular driving. My mind was too fast for my body. I would think about hitting the brakes and take me two seconds before I get to do it. He does go home late, up to this day drinking with his colleagues, but he always has a driver to drive him home. We only did the stupid driving twice. And this is what happened with the car accident. Our youngest sibling fell asleep in the middle of driving. It was 3 in the morning, and she was going to visit her friend's party. She was not drunk. But she was lacking sleep. She was taking a turn from a bridge and shut her eyes. She spun around the other side of the road 
the car was a wreck. But she didn't have a scratch on her. The police told her she's lucky. If there was an oncoming car, it would be a different story. She could be dead. As a thought experiment, what if she died? I'll be writing a letter to my sister expressing how we could have spent more time together. How I should have known her more as a person beyond the laughs and smiles. How I would like to know her dreams and aspirations. In William Irvine's book, The Guide to a Good Life, he shares the stoic technique, negative visualization. We go live our day-to-day lives thinking that we will always enjoy the things that are valuable to us. This will give us suffering when the things we love get taken away from us. Take for example two types of fathers. One father looks at his daughter knowing that he will be spending decades with her, while the other periodically reflects on his daughter's mortality. The first father will refuse to think about gloomy thoughts. He goes about living his life thinking that his daughter will outlive her. He will not be having profound moments with his child. The second father will be having a rush of joy every morning he is greeted by his daughter. He will be grateful to spend another day with his child knowing that this may be their last time together. Visualizing that we are going to lose the people we love offers a satisfying experience. I often remind myself that my wife will not be here for a long time. And when I tell her that I love her, it comes from a place of appreciation that she gets to live another day. Spending one more day with her means the world to me. Even if I know about this concept, it still slips my mind. There's a constant need to remind myself that life is fleeting. Sooner or later, this exercise will come true. Either all my loved ones die, or I'm the lucky one who goes first. I don't mean to sound morbid or depressed, far from it. I am hopeful and happy that I got to talk to my sister and reconnect with her after the incident. It made me realize how beautiful it is to live another day with her. Take a second today and look at your mom, dad, sibling, or significant other. Imagine how it would feel like if today was their last day. It will feel awful for a minute, but let that idea percolate in your head. Let it simmer. Sooner or later, you will feel bliss like you've never felt before. Thank you for listening. This is Nicole. If you've reached up until this end, please follow me here on Medium for more stories like this. Thank you. Hello, this is Nicole Policarpio helping people tell better origin stories. A craftsman and artist, storyteller, writer, speaker, and filmmaker. I'm reading to you today my article, How I Improve My Writing a Thousandfold. Practice does not make you perfect. Feedback does. How do you get feedback on your work? Whom do you share it with before you release it to the public? Whose opinions matter the most to you? Do you define great work by the number of claps, highlights, and comments? Is it the number of views? This video has 15 million views. Is this what we should strive for? We are inundated with comments, likes, and shares. Whose voice do we need to assure us that we're in the right direction? Seth Godin removed the comment section in his blog. Same as with the minimalists and Leo Babauta of Zen Habits. 
Seth also hasn't read an Amazon review of his books. He says that it doesn't help him write better content. We care so much about the opinion of others that we often forget that these sentiments don't matter that much. I am guilty of this. I used to share all my work on Facebook. I would get a wide range of responses from being ignored, ridiculed, and praised. It tainted the way I saw my work. It is feedback coming from a wide range of audience that, ultimately, is not who my work is for. They were not my tribe. They were not my ideal audience. In Chase Jarvis' interview of Brene Brown, Brene shares a secret that helps her with the dilemma of having to care what people think, but not being defined by those opinions. She keeps a small piece of paper in her wallet. In it is the list of people whose opinions matter the most. These are the people who love you, not in spite of, but because of your vulnerabilities and imperfections. Whenever she's faced with negative feedback, she constantly reminds herself that those people are not on her list. If you had to write your own list, how many would you jot down? She has eight people on her list. I don't think it would be productive to consider a million people before you start working on your craft. The people on my list are the ones whom I respect and look up to. I rely on them to tell me if I'm doing a great job or if I'm talking gibberish. I need feedback to calibrate me into navigating the right path. Practice does not make me perfect. Constructive feedback does. I can write every day and not improve if I can't see the problems with my ideas. The Heat Brothers call this the curse of knowledge in their seminal book, Made to Stick. This is best understood by the psychological experiment Elizabeth Newton conducted in 1990. She illustrated the concept using a game. Students were divided into two groups, tappers and listeners. The tappers were asked to choose a famous song such as Happy Birthday and tapped their hearts out on the table. The listener's job was to guess the song. The study showed that only 2.5% of the listeners got the song right. When they asked the tappers to guess their batting rate, they predicted that they got the message across by 50%. And this is where the curse happens. Once we know the melody of a song, it's hard for us to imagine not knowing it. We are tappers thinking that our point is getting across to our listeners. This is the importance of feedback. We have forgotten how it is to start from scratch. Writing is a lonely job, or any craft for that matter. Writing is the birth of any significant work, either it's a novel, speech, or a film. Filmmaking or making music is collaborative, but it starts with our own compass and finding our own way. We then bring this raw material to our collaborators for review and adjustments. In writing, we need to collaborate with our ideal reader. In Stephen King's book on writing, this particular story struck a chord with me. It was about Stephen's wife being her ideal reader. Tabby never voiced a single doubt. Her support was constant. One of the few good things I could take as a given. And whenever I see a first novel dedicated to a wife or a husband, I smile and think, there's someone who knows. Writing is a lonely job. Having someone who believes in you makes a lot of difference. They don't have to make speeches. Just believing is usually enough.
do all opinions weigh the same? Not for me. In the end, I listen most closely to Tabby because she's the one I write for, the one I want to wow. If you're writing primarily for one person besides yourself, I advise you to pay very close attention to that person's opinion. And if what you hear makes sense, then make the changes. You can't let the whole world into your story, but you can let in the ones that matter the most. And you should. I share the innermost parts of my brain with my wife. She's my soundboard. She knows everything about my ideologies. She's my soundboard. She knows everything about my ideologies. She's the first listener whom I need to impress. She determines if what I'm writing is trash. If it doesn't appeal to her taste, then I'm onto something weird. I can't tell you how many times she saved an article, a film, or a speech of mine. In a world where we see creators rack up millions of subscribers, thousands of followers, and hundreds of fans, we think that we need to impress those people. It's counterintuitive to impress one person only. For me, that one person is enough to get me through the dark times. I am certainly in a dark time right now. I am treading on deep water and I can drown anytime soon. But that one fan helps me stay afloat. She's my life vest. If you're in the same plight, find one person who will believe in you and inspire you to move forward and call you out when you're steering far from the target. He or she is not there to be a blind follower and sing your praises. Far from it. They'll give a hard look at what you produce. It may be good one day and bad most of the other time. But at least you will have a sounding board who will listen and nod to tell you that what you have today is shit and celebrate with you when you struck upon gold. How did I improve my writing a thousandfold? I got married to the right person. Thank you for listening up until this point. If you did, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you learned something from my story. Please follow me here on Medium for more stories like this. Once again, this is Nicole, signing out.